welcome to the International Bass Podcast, brought to you by Wopi. I'm your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And I'm your co-host, Robert Rogi. And in this episode, we have Irene Scott with us. She's a journalist and media development professional focused on providing access to information in communities affected by conflict and natural disaster. She specializes in humanitarian information systems, communicating with communities, rumor tracking projects and media development training. Since February 2018, she has also been a program director at Translators Without Borders. Welcome to the show, Irene. Thanks for having me. Cool. I guess we should just kick things off with an overview. How did you get started with uh, Translators Without Borders? And tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. So I had worked with Translators Without Borders. They were one of our partners back when I was working on the European migration response. We were working out of Greece. And back then I was working for an organization called Internews. And Translators Without Borders were our partner that literally did our translation work. So back then they were very much focused on providing access to information in a number of different languages in that response. So we were translating key humanitarian information for the community into Farsi, into Arabic, into French, into lots of different languages so that the mix of migrants that were flowing through Europe all had access to information about where to find legal services, for example, what their migration card meant, what the color of it meant, and to try and help distill some of those rumors that were going through the camps at that time. So I knew about the organization and I knew they did really great work. So when the opportunity came up to work in their Rohingya refugee response in Bangladesh, I jumped at the chance because I find their work really fascinating. And the concept of language in a humanitarian crisis is just something that I think maybe to outsiders seems a really obvious thing that you would go into a humanitarian response and you would try and speak the same language as the affected population. It seems really obvious, but I think generally as humanitarian responses, everyone's really frantic and it's very hectic and everyone's trying to get a lot done at once. Language is one of those things that often slips to a lower priority, language and communication. So I really wanted to get amongst that in this crisis because of all the crises that I've worked in, language is such a key problem in this Rohingya refugee response. Mm -hmm. So if you talk about your work in general, I mean, you've worked on a lot of projects before as well. What is your role? And also what's your role with the project now with Transit Without Borders? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, yeah. So in my experience, as you said in your really good introduction, I've worked in a lot of different projects that are all about people that are in a state of crisis accessing really good information to be able to make decisions for themselves. So I started out as a radio journalist and, you know, radio is all about giving people information, right? We're doing that at the moment through the podcast. Through that, I was also working in Australia through our bushfire response. So I would, you know, be on the microphone at one o'clock in the morning when a, a massive bushfire was raging and you'd be trying to get really key emergency information to those affected populations as quick as possible in a way that didn't raise any additional panic. There's already enough going on. So I think that's what really showed me how important it is to have really good quality information being given to affected populations. From then, I went to Solomon Islands and did a similar thing there with their national broadcasters and their national disaster management agencies, looking at when you know there's a cyclone coming, how do you actually tell the population it's coming? How do you get that high-level scientific information to the public in a way that they can understand it and do something about it? And from there, I went to South Sudan, where many, many problems there with people being able to access information in a language that they understand. Um, South Sudan's one of those 
interesting cases where the national language is actually English, but very few people speak the language. It's an aspirational national language, you could say. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of tribal languages being spoken and they have their own version of Arabic as well called Juba Arabic, um, spoken in some parts of the country. So I was working for a national broadcaster there trying to broadcast in a number of different languages to get information to people. And when the crisis really hit and the war erupted, we went into the camps there and said, okay, how do we build a system so that the affected people here have a chance to actually have a say in their own response so we built, I guess, what you could call uh, mini radio stations for just inside the camp. So we had reporters that were affected people themselves. They spoke to people on a daily basis and said, hey, what's going on? What are the issues that you care about today? And then we would then get brand fresh, spanking new <laughs> information from humanitarian partners to give back to them. So if they said, oh, we're really angry because our bathroom or our latrine system isn't working, we would go to that partner and say, can you explain why this isn't working or what you're doing to fix it. So it helps bring together the affected population and the humanitarians a little bit closer to try and understand each other a little bit better. It's a bit of a long-winded answer, but in in Bangladesh, (laughs) on a day-to-day basis, a lot of what our project is doing is we're an organisation that supports other humanitarian organisations to do their job better. So while some humanitarians in this response would be out in the camps every single day, delivering education in schools or protection work or installing boreholes for fresh water. What our work is, is working with every single partner in the response to say, when you're communicating with the population, how are you doing it? Are you doing it the way that they prefer? You know, they prefer face-to-face discussions or audio messages because there's quite high illiteracy in the camp. So that means that more people can access that information. And the other thing we're doing is looking at the Rohingya language itself. It's a language that hasn't had a lot of research done on it. They're a pretty marginalised population that not many people have had much access to them really over the years. So we're looking at what dialect of that language is this population speaking and how can we build tools and provide training to humanitarian partners to make sure that when they're talking to the population, they're speaking the right language and that information isn't lost or misunderstood along the way. Right. So let's go a little bit into the Rohingya situation I mean, I think we all know something about it, but I don't think that, you know, every listener knows everything about it, right? Sure. So can you describe the camps and then sort of work backwards to how we got there? Sure. Yeah. So the camp itself, it's in a place called Cox's Bazaar, and it's really now the largest refugee camp in the world, which makes it very difficult for people to understand how big it is. One thing I would say is if you have Google Maps anywhere near you, go to Cox's Bazaar and zoom in on the satellite and you'll see a sea of tiny little shelters, little red and blue roofs that cover a massive amount of land along the coast of Bangladesh. So there's one major camp there that has around 600,000 people living in makeshift shelters. So they're shelters made of bamboo with uh, tarpaulins on the top. And they're really right next door to each other. So there's very little chance for privacy or, you know, to have your own space to even perhaps grow a little bit of extra food for yourself. The camp itself is just, while it has improved a lot over the year, when people first flooded into the country, it was just mayhem. There were too many people and there was no order. And you had to work out how to put hundreds of thousands of people into a brand new town. Now there's a lot of order. There are schools, there are medical clinics, there are places to go if you need help. There are roads. Little shops have sprung up along the roads. It's always fascinating to see how quickly a resilient community rebuilds their own economy in that way. 
someone that, you know, is a shopkeeper is always a shopkeeper. <laughs> Even if there's been a crisis, they'll find a way to open a small shop and keep that income coming in for themselves. So it's just an, an immense space that is rolling hills after rolling hills and you just can't see from one side to the other. And so what happened was in August 2017, there was a military crackdown on the Rohingya population in Myanmar. They're a population that has always struggled in Myanmar and has always struggled for recognition as being its own population and recognition as being a part of Myanmar. The Myanmar government sees them as migrants that have come from Bangladesh and they see themselves as their own unique ethnic group within Myanmar. So when the military crackdown happened, more than 700,000 people went over the border from Myanmar to Bangladesh. And so they, to put it into perspective, that was added on top of around 200,000 that were already there in Bangladesh and had been living there for around 30 years. So you've now got about a million people living in the southern part of Bangladesh in a one enormous camp and then a series of smaller camps throughout that area and trying to coexist with an already pretty crowded host population of Bangladeshis that live there and trying to fit an extra one million people into any country is difficult, but especially for Bangladesh that is a, a country with such a high population and such great needs in that part of the country already. It's a really challenging <laughs> response to try and make sure everyone, including the host population, gets what they need to survive and to prosper. What would you say the biggest challenges were when you started the project there? Yeah, and how did you start? I think... Our biggest challenge was, well, when we came into the response, it was just after it had started. And our biggest challenge was, how do you look at this population of a million people and work out what is going on with their language when you don't speak their language yourself? <laughs> mm -hmm. So from the get-go, the important thing was to try and find fixes and people that could work with us that knew the language, that were from the affected community and that could help us through that process. You know, as humanitarians, we've got lots of experience in research and lots of different things. But if you don't speak the language, then it's very, very hard to even put one step in front of the other to move forward in your program planning. So our first step was to do a large scale research called the Rohingya Zuban Report, which you can find on our website if you just Google Rohingya Zuban. And Zuban basically means tongue or language in the Rohingya language. So it's the Rohingya language report. And so the key part of that report was to show humanitarians who had flooded in in this response how important the language was. As I said earlier, often in humanitarian response, a lot of people flood into the area. They might have a lot of experience in a lot of different contexts. And what's really important is to have organisations like Translators Without Borders there to say, yes, you have a lot of experience, but please localise to this context. Please be aware of the challenges with this language. Please be aware of the literacy challenges within this population and try and communicate effectively to make sure that the population itself are more than just beneficiaries of aid. They're not just passive recipients. They're people that can actually be involved in the planning of the response and the design of the response itself. So that report came out and people started to say, oh, the Rohingya language, okay, that's a thing. Because one of the biggest misconceptions in this response was that in Chittagong, which is the area where Cox's Bazaar is, where the response is, they speak a, a language called Chittagonian or Chatgaya which has some similarities to the Rohingya language, purely because, as you'd know, a lot of communities that live very close to each other over hundreds and hundreds of years 
often you will find that there is crossover in their language and that there are ways that they can communicate with each other. So what a lot of organizations were doing was saying, well, if there's crossover with Chittagonian Rohingya, let's just speak to them in Chittagonian. You know, it's, it's a crisis. We need to get things done. We haven't got time to stop and think about where the language could be different. So hmm. what we've been doing ever since is trying to say, okay, you know, we know that you're not doing this with malicious intent, but here are some really key parts where the language is different and where it can be actually dangerous to speak the wrong language. If you think about in a humanitarian response, you open a hospital. So someone goes into the hospital and tries to explain what's wrong with them. If the doctor can't understand them or if the doctor misinterprets what's being said to them, it can have really life or death consequences. If someone has been a survivor of sexual violence, as was the case with a lot of the women that made it across to Bangladesh, they need to feel comfortable in reporting to someone what happened to them. Being in an environment where they're asked to repeat themselves over and over again and they're not being understood can be very re-traumatizing for that person. So what we've been doing is trying to work with uh, different organizations to raise awareness of the difference in the language, but to really research those key uh, life-saving and contextual areas where, where language makes a really big difference and to provide as much training as humanly possible to all the field workers so that they can be really respectful in their response and effective. You know, at the end of the day, you want to have a conversation in a way that someone understands you and you understand them. So, oh man, I have so many questions. <laughs> I've got time. Just, just for perspective. So you mentioned that in Myanmar, the Rohingya were seen as uh, migrants. But when we talk about time, how long were the Rohingya people living in Myanmar? For a long time, right? For a long time. Yeah, I think for the Rohingya themselves, they have records that prove they've been living there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Generations upon yeah. generations of Rohingya have been living in that area one thing I think makes this discussion difficult is when borders were formed. So if you think about Myanmar and Bangladesh and when they were recognized as, as countries and those border lines were drawn, like in many areas of the world, that border line is often drawn by a government or a colonizer that sometimes makes an arbitrary decision, but you know, draws it in in a particular place and doesn't always realize that they may be splitting communities in two or making life difficult for particular communities. You know, I don't want to get into like the big geopolitical thing of map, mm. ma map making and country building, but it can be really challenging, right? So for that population, for hundreds of years, of course, you know, Chittagonians moved over to Myanmar, Rohingya went over to Chittagong. There was movement because between Myanmar and, and Bangladesh, we're talking about one river. There's a river called the Naf River, and it's not very wide. So you can be standing in a refugee camp in Bangladesh and you peer across the river and Myanmar's just there. It's really not a faraway concept. You're really staring at it every day. So for communities in that situation, their, their culture is fluid across those borders. It's just really the borders that aren't as flexible to allow for that. <laughs> hmm. So can I ask another question, Tanya? Can I ask two in a Go row? Go ahead. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw this Thai film called Manta Ray. I don't know if you saw it, but it's sort of, I don't know, kind of touches on the Rohingya thing. But what has the response been from other countries in the region in terms of receiving, you know, people, the Rohingya people? Yeah, so Rohingya people, because they've been marginalized for so long, are really spread all over the world. 
Um, mm. Before this response that started last year, there were, like I said, there were there were already an influx into Bangladesh for the last 30 years. We have Rohingya living with us here in Australia. There are many Rohingya in Canada, in America. Malaysia has a large Rohingya population. Thailand has a Rohingya population. There are many more Rohingya living outside of Myanmar than are now in Myanmar because of the waves of persecution and, yeah, many peaks and troughs, I would say, that prompted people to leave. And Sometimes people did return and sometimes they didn't. They established a life somewhere else. So for this particular wave, you know, more than 700,000 people crossing, they're all in Bangladesh, but I would say that the region is trying to support them staying in Bangladesh for now. There has been a massive humanitarian aid response from all over the world, massive financial response from the usual donors, you know, that would be the EU, the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, the usual donors of humanitarian response, but also large donations from Muslim countries that you can see because the Rohingya population is mostly a, a Muslim population, big donations from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other countries that also have a, a vested interest in looking after their people. So I would say as a response, it initially received a lot of attention and a lot of focus, but now we're coming up to a year year and a half along and that's when we start to see the world attention shifting people start to move on to a new crisis to look at they don't necessarily always want to hear about the Rohingya again and this is really the dangerous time where you have you know a million people stuck in camps that are now starting to think that the world is starting to forget about them and they're they're starting to really be concerned about their future what's the plan yeah same yeah what's the plan that's a big question I would say at the moment there is no definite plan for the community with <laughs> with the caveat that there has been an agreement that's been signed between the government of Bangladesh and the government of Myanmar and the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. And that agreement just basically says when the conditions are right, we will return these people to Myanmar. What are the right conditions is a very tricky question and I think we all would agree, including UNHCR and and most of the major countries of the world at the moment agree that the conditions are now not right for return. It's not a situation where uh, the Rohingya would feel they could return to their own villages, be recognised for their ethnicity and live a safe life. So for the moment, the population will be living in the camps. They're also stuck as a bit of a political football, you could call them as well. Bangladesh is about to go for national elections. So I think for the population themselves, they also feel a little bit that their fate is in the hands of Bangladesh's government and whoever is elected at the end of this year with the national elections and what approach they have to the refugee response. The Bangladesh government has been hugely generous and has led this response really well up until this point. But I think there's probably nervousness to know what's happening next and how much say the population themselves will get in their own fate. So does this mean when you say Bangladesh and Myanmar signed like a treaty or signed a contract about this? Is this Bangladesh saying, look, you have to take them back at some point? Or, you know, who's on which side there? Yeah, I think it's without being in the closed door negotiations that would have come to this agreement, it's hard to say. But from the outset, you would, from Bangladesh's side, they're saying, yes, please, one day, as soon as possible, you need to take these people back. We've done a very good job looking after them, but they're expensive. We don't have the space and we have our own problems to deal with. I think that's the most simplistic kind of version of that agreement. And from Myanmar's side as well, it's important for them to take the population back to show that 
I guess, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the country and, and the way that they've treated this population. And by taking them back, they could be seen as improving their human rights image, depending on what they do with them when they come back. But um, how many people have died? But I think that's a really tricky question. It's been very difficult to access a lot of the areas where the attacks happened. Humanitarian and observer, UN observer access has been really quite complicated. So the estimates go from uh, the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands. But it's very hard to verify an exact number of how many people have died. A mm. lot of the figures at the moment are based on the population themselves that is now in Bangladesh telling researchers that, and human rights reporters how many people from their family have been killed. And I would say it's while it's hard to put an exact number on it, there is not one person I've met in that camp that didn't lose family members. Mm -hmm. No one escaped without losing someone. I suppose that when Bangladesh and Myanmar were talking, were, were there any Rohingyas in the room? Oh, that is a great question. And the answer is no. And that's what I think has been really hard for the humanitarian community and especially humanitarians like our organization that focus on trying to give the population a voice is that it can be very frustrating that these high level decisions are made about their future, about their future prospects and how their lives will be without anyone consulting them. So no, the decision was made and they were told that this agreement had been signed mm -hmm. and the community quite rightly said, hang on a second, why weren't we asked? <laughs> why weren't we in the room when you were deciding this, right. this agreement? Yeah, because yeah, so, if I was Rohingya, I'd never go back. Like, mm, that's just, yeah. that's what I, if I was, I wouldn't go back. I mean. Yeah. Mm. And the population really, when you speak to them, there has been a lot of research on, I mean, what the community thinks about this idea of going back. There is a large proportion that is, that would agree with you, that would say, no, I'm never going back. And no matter what happens, mm. I'm not going back. But there is also a portion of the community that says, you know, Myanmar is my home. I've spent a lot of my life telling Myanmar that Rohingya are part of Myanmar and we are a, a legitimate ethnic group that lives in that country. I want to go home. I want to go back to my farm. I want to go back to my village. It's where my life is. And I want them to make conditions safe for me to do that. So there are some people that definitely do want to go back and would love to go back if there's a way they can do that safely. Some people have left family members behind that they would love to see again. You know, so it's, I mean, with these large populations and even with a small group, you never get a completely unanimous thought process for everyone and everyone has different reasons for making choices for themselves. But at the end of the day, we just want them to have enough information to make that choice and the actual opportunity to make the choice for themselves. Mm -hmm. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. 
It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordby Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. Are there still people coming to Bangladesh from Myanmar? Not so much. There are mm-hmm. still some people that are leaving Myanmar. Some people, I think you might get the odd couple that might still make it over to Bangladesh, but really the waves of people moving have ended. They ended quite a while ago. There are still some people that are leaving to the other places where Rohingya often flee to, like Malaysia or Thailand or other countries, but not so much. The major influx that we saw at the end of mid actually 2017, that's really died down. And a lot of the Rohingya that are left in Myanmar now, either living in a, an IDP camp, so within, I guess, a barbed wire fence, a camp that is regulated. And some are still living in their communities, but not many, not many. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think one thing that is often not mentioned about the Rohingya community is they're often spoken about this as the Muslims of Myanmar, and it's always a much more rich story than that. You know, within the Rohingya population themselves, there are Hindu Rohingyas, there are Buddhist Rohingyas, they're not all Muslim. And also within Myanmar, there are other Muslim groups that aren't Rohingyas, that are not necessarily persecuted in the same way. So it's, I think it's quite easy to paint it as picking on the Muslims of Myanmar, and that often in the media that's the way it's simplified. But it's always a much more complex story, and there, it's, there are always complex needs and differences within communities for sure. So in Bangladesh, where they are with the red and blue like shanties, well, part of me wants to ask if like how it's going with the people that were already in Bangladesh and like how the language might be evolving over there, because I suppose that's with a huge influx of people there, you know, there must be a lot of people trying to talk with each other and maybe they're creating new things. But then another part of me just wants to ask, is it possible that Cox's Bazaar could just, that it's just becoming a city? Let me go with your first question first. Okay. (laughs) So the evolution of the language is really fascinating. And it's something that where, even though we do this as a job and we talk about it every day, we still get so excited about because it's so interesting. So the Rohingya that have been living in Bangladesh for the last 20 or 30 years, the dialect of Rohingya that they speak is now, it's now shifted a lot closer to Chittagonian and borrowing a lot of words from Bangla. It's changed over the 30 years, just like anyone that had a neighbor that spoke a, a slightly similar but slightly different language. You modify your language so that you can all understand each other. The new refugees that have arrived now speak, I guess, to simplify it, a different dialect of Rohingya. So what you'll see from the new arrivals is that they use, they've borrowed a lot more words from Burmese, which is a tonal language, Rakhine, which is a language related to Burmese, which is tonal again. And they borrow a lot more heavily from Urdu and from Arabic. So it's quite interesting when the older arrived refugees speak to the new arrived refugees, where they can understand each other, but often the older arrivals will say, they speak like my grandmother used to speak, for example. Hmm. So they speak what they perceive as an old-fashioned way, but it's the way that people used to speak when they were back in Myanmar, because you borrow from the languages that are nearby you. But the challenge being for Rohingyas that were perhaps second generation and were born in Bangladesh, sometimes they're not taught the tonal nature of the language. They grew up more speaking Chittagonian and Bangla. And the tonal part of the language can be so challenging because 
for example, I could speak a, a sentence to you in English and have three words in Mandarin. And you would understand most of the sentence, but those three words in Mandarin could be really key. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you could completely change the context of the sentence. So the tonal stuff is really difficult for people. The interesting thing we've also seen is now that they've been in Bangladesh for a year, not only are people starting to use the new arrivals using a couple more Bangla terms and starting to understand Chittagonian a little bit more, they're also adopting some weird humanitarian terms that we just find fascinating. For some odd reason, you don't use the word toilet. You always refer to a toilet as a latrine, which seems like a very formalized term for a toilet. For the Rohingya community that arrived in the last year, their word in their language for toilet used to be tati, but tati was seen as a little bit of a crude word. You know, I'm sure in all of our languages we have a more crude word for toilet. It was seen as that way. You wouldn't say it in polite company. So now the community, after hanging around with humanitarians for a year, uses the word latrine that we find fascinating. <laughs> We're slowly corrupting their language with strange humanitarian terms as well as we, um, you know, all coexist next to each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the language, uh, I guess it can tell stories too, right? For sure, yeah, sure. of yeah. course. Um, especially a language that isn't standardized and it's not written. I think it makes it, I mean, it's language is fun. It evolves, it shifts to it in its environment and it always tries to stay useful. So, yeah, it is fun watching the language change and mold itself into this new humanitarian camp environment. So there's no written language at all? Yeah, so Rohingya is it's an oral language. There have been a lot of attempts to create a written form. So there has been an attempt to write Rohingya using Latin letters, so in, in English. So that's called Rohinglish, that form of writing. There's another camp that has tried to record the language using Arabic letters. There, and there's another camp called Hanifi, which is a completely new script that was invented by a guy named Muhammad Hanif. And he's in, from his philosophy, he says that the Rohingya is an, a unique ethnic community with a unique language, and therefore they should have their own script. So he developed a completely unique script for the language. I would say that all of these different camps that are trying to develop a written form of the language don't play with each other very well. They're a little bit in competition, and for most of the Rohingya around the world, and especially in Bangladesh, They're not aware that these written systems exist and they don't have access to them. They're not aware they exist. And for them, Rohingya is really day-to-day -day an oral language. Some people might have literacy in Burmese or Arabic or other languages, but Rohingya for them is very much an oral language. Mm -hmm. So how do they, you said, you know, a lot of them are also like in Canada or Australia, like quite developed countries. How do they communicate if there is no written language? You know, if they're not talking face-to-face. Yeah, well, there are lots of ways around it. You can, a lot of, the community really likes WhatsApp. <laughs> Because with mm -hmm. WhatsApp, you don't have to be able to write. You can send audio messages. Phone calls are very popular with the community, but also for Rohingya populations that are living around the world, they do start to, yeah, adapt the language. Some might be using the actual created form of Rohinglish. Others might just be trying to phonetically write their language any way that they can. So it, it might be not so standardized, but if you know the alphabet of the other language that they're using, you can kind of make out what they're trying to say. That's very interesting. To come back to Robert's question, do you think it's a possibility that, what was the name, the camp's going to be a city? 
I think uh, that's really hard to tell. It will be interesting to see over the next few years what will happen. Where the majority of the refugees are now living is actually in an area that used to be a national park. So it was a, a reserve that where quite a, a number of endangered elephants actually used it as a migratory path. And I know people actually that used to work on projects to preserve this forest area because it's quite unique and special in the country. Unfortunately, because of the need for space for so many people, that area has been completely flattened and the elephants have had to migrate using different paths and it's been quite detrimental to the natural environment, you could say. So with that said, it really depends on what happens next for the Rohingya as to whether it becomes its own city. I mean, Refugee camps in many ways are their own city already. They already have functioning sewage systems, they have hospitals, they have schools, they have shops, they have many things that a, a city would have. The only thing that they don't have at the moment is the certainty in their life to build a permanent house or the regulations to be allowed to build a permanent house. At the moment, there's a certain level of dwelling that they're allowed to build by the rules laid down by the Bangladesh government because from their perspective, they don't want this to be a permanent city. They very much would like to find a way to solve the situation and have the Rohingya return home. So there are definite restrictions on the types of dwellings you can build to live in. They, they very much have to be temporary. So for the moment, it's a city of sorts, <laughs> but it's mm -hmm. probably not the idea of a city that many of us would think of when we think of a city. There's not going to be a, a skyscraper any day soon. Yeah. So I guess for the listeners, if the listeners out there are like would like to help, what would be the best way for the listener to help? There are lots of ways that people listening can help. In terms of our organisation, if the listener happens to be a linguist of sorts, we're always looking for volunteers to work with Translators Without Borders. We have a network of around 25,000 translators that volunteer with us around the world. Specifically in this response, we're looking for people that speak English, that speak Burmese, Rohingya or Bangla, or even Chittagonian, if you happen to speak Chittagonian. So they're the uh, volunteers that we're really looking for to support our operations. But if you do happen to speak other languages, you can also apply to be a translator with us for, we work in around 100 languages, so there's a space for most people. For people that maybe aren't a language expert or aren't a translator, there are lots of ways that you can donate. There is always a UN appeal for funds. The challenge with a lot of these responses is that, as I was saying, after about a year, people lose interest. And often that means for humanitarian response as well, the money starts to dry up. So while the initial response might be quite well funded and you can set up a lot of systems and safety nets for the population, you start to lose funding. And a lot of those wonderful programs that have been developed sometimes have to be really severely cut back. So money is also a thing that can always be useful in a humanitarian response. And you can choose to donate through whichever organization you feel comfortable. Of course, Translators Without Borders would love your money. But if you, there are also, of course, major UN funding appeals. There um, is the Red Cross is here with quite a strong presence and many of the major NGOs you might know from your own countries. But I mean, the other thing you can do that is just the easiest, easiest thing for people that are listening is just to keep talking about the response. Share it with your friends. Tell people that this is happening. I mean, it breaks my heart sometimes that it's the largest refugee camp in the world. And when I talk to people, I'm in Melbourne at the moment, and sometimes I'll strike up a conversation with someone over a coffee and they have no idea that this crisis is even happening and that there are a million people there. 
And the way sometimes to find solutions for these populations is just to keep an eye on it, have the world know and have the world watch. This is a population that, you know, wants you to know about them and, and wants your support. So conversations are free. <laughs> and and you're on Twitter and I saw your Twitter account and you do tweet a lot of stuff like that about the situation. So what was your Twitter handle? And maybe people can also follow you so they can keep up to date. Sure, of course. So my personal Twitter handle is at I-S-E-E-S-C-O-T-T, at I-C Scott. Uh, but also you can follow the Translators Without Borders Twitter handle, which is at Translators WB. We both talk about the Rohingya a lot. But if you want to follow me as well, I talk a lot about how to access good quality information for people that are in pretty awful situations. So if that's your thing, feel free to follow me and to share reports and information. I'm always willing to talk about that topic. It is an obsession. <laughs> you definitely know a lot about it. And it's great to learn about those things because I didn't know much about it either. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will probably feel the same way. So it's nice to have some insights and not just read whatever's on the media. Yeah. And I mean, it's it can seem a daunting topic, especially a big response like this. It can seem quite daunting to try and get your head around. But just read articles, have discussions, ask people questions. If there's a Rohingya community where you're living, go say hi, ask them how they're doing. If there's anything you can do in your local town to help out, you never know, right? And having discussions, like I said, is free. It's quite easy. And you could really surprise yourself of what you can do without even having to leave the comfort of your own home. Mm -hmm. Well, that was great. Robert, did you have any more questions? Uh, I have a million <laughs> more questions, but I think we should probably we should probably wrap it up. It was really great to have you on. And it's an interesting thing that we should all be talking about. So, Thanks oh, sure. so much for having we'll me. We'll definitely try to spread the word. I mean, we will on our social media as well and our newsletter. And it's also difficult to talk about it in a way. Like even just now, I said it's an interesting thing we should all be talking about. It, and it's not really interesting, right? It's actually like hor <laughs> horrific. Right. But how yeah. do you even like access that horror? Well, yeah, it is a horrific topic and it can make it difficult to raise over a polite dinner conversation. Right. You know, I think humanitarians are sometimes those people that people invite out for dinner and everyone says, hey, how's your week gone? And everyone says, oh, you know, it was a bit tough at work this week or, oh, it's long days at the office. And it's always the humanitarian that brings down the mood and says, oh, well, this week I was dealing with a huge population of hugely traumatized people that the world has forgotten. So, you know, mm. what a great week. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it is hard to talk about, but the information is out there. It's good to know what's happening in the world, right? Yeah. Right. It sure is. Well, well, anyone who's listening, you know, share our podcast, go follow Irene, share everything you'd like to share about the topic. And, and don't take your comforts for granted. Exactly. Yeah. And ask questions. Ask me questions if you have them. It doesn't matter how stupid they might seem. <laughs> All right. Well, that was another episode of the International Bus Podcast, this time with Irene Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks.